Welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast. If you love tennis and want to improve your game, this podcast is for you. Whether it's technique, strategy, equipment, or the mental game, tennis professional Ian Westerman is here to make you a better player. And now, here's Ian. Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, experts, tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Tennis Tours and Tennis Express. Thank you very much for joining me on today's episode. And before we get to our two listener questions today, I'd like to quickly thank all of you for all of the support and feedback that you've given me in the last week since last week's episode, number 164. I just went over and took a look at the comments, and I've got some to catch up on. Don't worry, I'm still going to reply to everybody who's left me comments and thoughts and feedback there about last week's episode. But as of right now, as I'm recording the show, there are 177 comments on that episode. Obviously, a lot of those are are myself replying to to those of you who have left comments, but that's by far the the most feedback I've ever received from a show. So I just want to thank all of you very much for your support and your kind words last week in those comments. It really means a lot to me. So with that, let's go ahead and get to today's episode. Sit back, relax, and get ready for some great tennis instruction. All right, let's go ahead and get to our first question today. And it comes to us from Michael in upstate New York. He's a 3.5 level player. He wrote to me and said, I have the Serena and Venus Williams Wilson K-Factor team blade racket. I love the racket and recently purchased a second one I would like to modify and experiment with. Having the original to serve as a baseline will allow me to make a more reliable assessment of the customized change. The racket has a weight of 10.2 ounces, and after listening to one of your podcasts, I believe I have adequate strength to benefit from a heavier racket, 11.2 to 11.5 ounces. My plan is to add a sufficient amount of lead tape at the 9 and 3 o'clock positions, Still unsure how much tape is necessary. I realize I would lose some maneuverability, but I am looking to be more consistent with a longer and smoother stroke. I tend to I tend to get too whippy and often revert unnecessarily to rolling over my forehands. I am also considering going on the lighter side with string tension, 53 to 55 pounds to add some power. My thought is that this will compensate for the loss of swing speed given the additional weight. Any feedback will be greatly appreciated. Keep broadcasting, Mike. All right, Mike. Well, good questions. And I want to start off by saying that I like the path that you're headed down. I think it's really smart to start experimenting with more weight. And a great way to do that is to take a lighter racket, relatively speaking, that you already like and add weight to the frame as opposed to going through the the process of demoing new rackets, spending the money to to buy one or two new ones that are maybe current technology that that cost a lot more money than a frame that you already like. 
Now, once in a while, it's a good idea to upgrade and, and be current with the, with the, uh, the frames that you use. You don't want to be using 10 or 15 year old rackets for sure. But if you have something that's just a couple of years old, like what Mike has here, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with simply modifying what you already have if you're ready for that next step in terms of weight or balance, etc. And I think it's really smart that you're experimenting with more weight in general. And as I've talked about in previous episodes, we haven't really had a gear show in a little while, so I'll just quickly go over my thoughts on that. Uh, in general, I guide my students towards the heaviest racket that they're still comfortable making a swing with. Obviously, you don't want to go too heavy where it's just, it feels like it just takes a lot of work to, to swing the racket and you don't feel like you can uh, m maneuver it, was the word that Mike used, which is a great word. If you, if you don't feel like you can maneuver the racket comfortably, then obviously that's too much weight. But a lot of recreational players play with frames that are too light for them. And as a result, they those lighter frames, really light frames, especially if you're like sub 10 ounces, they tend to lead towards poor technique. They're so maneuverable that it's very easy to use short, tight, kind of choppy, unsmooth technique. That's just poor technique. And, and the lightness of the frame and the amount of power that those light rackets make on their own really lets recreational players get away with poor technique like that. Longer, smoother swings will always lead towards higher level of play, higher levels of play. It's not an automatic, but the, the more you can lead yourself towards a more relaxed, smoother, longer swing path on shots like your forehand ground stroke, your backhand ground stroke, and your serve, the more potential you'll have to raise your level of play. So going towards a heavier racket definitely tends to promote that because the extra length makes it easier to maneuver the racket through the point of contact. If you have really short, choppy, poor technique, then a heavy racket will feel terrible because it's very difficult to accelerate it across your short swing path. But if you take that heavy racket and you accelerate it across a longer swing path, now we've got the best of both worlds. We have a heavier racket, which gives us more momentum through the point of contact. And we have the longer swing path, uh, which gives us the range of motion to be able to accelerate the racket head effectively. And the combination of those two things is really the ultimate. That's what you should be going for. So that's section number one. I'm, I'm going to talk about three different topics. That, that's number one. Just wanted to explain that quickly for those of you who aren't familiar with my thoughts on that. And if you want to hear more, go to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast and on the right, in the categories, there's a gear and equipment category, and I've had master racket technicians, several of them on the podcast before, talking about topics like this. If you want to hear more, not just from myself, but from people who really make it their, their career to really know gear, go listen to some of those episodes. They're definitely solid. All right, number, topic number two I want to address here, Mike, is is the proposed jump in weight that you're talking about. 10.2 ounces to 11.5 ounces is a huge jump in weight, really big jump. I would definitely encourage you 
to try less than that at first and make incremental movements in weight, you know, kind of up the scale. I would recommend to begin with adding no more than a half of an ounce, 0.5 ounces to the frame total at first. And you'll find that that's a very noticeable difference to start with. And going a whole ounce heavier or even more than an ounce heavier is really a gigantic difference, relatively speaking, in weight. It might not seem like a lot, but it will it will change the racket dramatically. So I would take uh, half of an ounce of lead tape. And the, the best way to tell how much you're working with is just get a cheap postage scale or postal scale. They're the uh, kind of little digital scales with a flat surface on them. And you can use those. They're very, very sensitive. So they're great for measuring sensitive things like uh, like lead tape. You know, a little bit really makes a big difference. And um, I'm going to link in the show notes here for this episode, number 165. I, I personally buy everything on Amazon these days. It's just impossible to beat the prices. And I found a, a good postal scale for, I think it was $23. And you can use that not only to measure out your lead tape very, very accurately, but you can then use it to measure the overall weight of your racket as well to, to test out exactly where you are. So I would recommend that if, especially if you're going to, if you're planning on spending a lot of time to customize this racket and then, uh, not only that, but once you customize this one, the new one to the way that you like it, Mike, you're going to want to make the second one exactly the same. So this, this postal scale will really help you not only know exactly where you are with the first one, but match the second one as well as far as the amount of weight that you're adding so that you have the same weight for both frames. Um, okay, so yeah, I would recommend 0.5 ounces. Use the postal scale, postal scale to measure that exactly. Take uh, a quarter of an ounce on each side of the frame, a quarter of an ounce at 9 o'clock, quarter of an ounce at 3 o'clock. Use that first. See what you think. If you still feel like you've got plenty of strength and you could definitely still handle more weight, then add a little bit at a time on top of that. Um, but I wouldn't go a full ounce heavier at first. Okay, and then lastly, uh, and again, I'm going to put a link to the postal scale in the uh, show notes. Just go to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast, click on episode number 165, and you'll see a link there to Amazon to the, uh, the scale that I found, pretty cheap price. Okay, and then lastly, Mike, I want to talk to you about the string tension. Honestly, I would keep the tension with what you're used to at first. I bet that you'll be surprised at how good it actually feels. I, I might be wrong. You, you, you might feel like once you add the weight, you might feel like you have a, a, a big drop in power. But I would be willing to wager that you'll be surprised that it might actually feel like it's the opposite, especially... If you do, in fact, start using a little bit longer swing path, a little bit more relaxed swing path to really take advantage of that heavier weight, when you add that extra weight to the racket, especially to the racket head, that increases the amount of momentum that is traveling through the point of contact. And so that extra momentum will make up for whatever less amount of racket head speed that you might have by having that heavier weight. Um, so th it's very possible that will just balance out by itself 
Plus, if you start using a longer path, that will allow you more potential to accelerate the racket faster anyway. It's very possible that once you start using the heavier racket, a couple months from now, you'll have the same racket head speed that you did before with the lighter racket anyway, because you'll simply get used to it. You'll start lengthening lengthening your your swing technique, and you will adapt to the heavier frame and not only have the longer path, not only have the extra momentum, but you'll have the same racket head speed as well. And bam, and now, now you've got you know an increased level of play, and that would be huge. That would be awesome. So those are my thoughts right now, Michael. Thank you very much for writing to me with your question in upstate New York. If you have anything further, definitely feel free to let me know. Probably the best way to, to do that would be to just post a comment for episode number 165 at EssentialTennis.com slash podcast. But hopefully this was helpful to you, and best of luck modifying your new frame. All right, before we get to our second question, I want to remind you all about the official sponsors of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Number one, TennisTours.com, where you can go to purchase professional ATP and WTA tour ticket packages and travel packages to go watch the pros play. And I want to give a quick shout out to John M., Essential Tennis fan, and he's come to several clinics, a great guy really hard worker, and he's in Monte Carlo right now watching the ATP event taking place there right now, the the Red Clay event, and having an amazing time. He purchased his tickets through TennisTours.com. They actually ended up upgrading his tickets from, I don't know, he was like in an upper section. They, they For free, they upgraded his tickets down to the lower section. You know, obviously, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen every time you buy tickets through them. But they've just taken really good care of him, and he's having an awesome time. So, John, continue enjoying your trip thanks to TennisTours.com. And if you'd like to check them out, please do that and use the promotional code ESSENTIAL when you check out. You'll get a discount off your purchase, and that shows them that you're a listener of the show. And then secondly, TennisExpress.com to get all of your gear needs taken care of, rackets, strains, machine, uh, straining machines, clothing, shoes, Whatever you need, they've got it. Free shipping for orders over $75. And to support the podcast, please go see them by going to EssentialTennis.com slash Express. That'll shoot you over there right away. Or you can simply go to the podcast page and click on the box on the right for Tennis Express. Either way, after you do that and make a purchase, a small percentage will come back to help support the Essential Tennis Podcast. All right, let's go ahead and get to our second question. This is a singles tactics question coming to us from Louis in Portugal. He wrote to me and said, I'm 31 years old, right-handed, one-handed backhand, and I'm writing to you from Porto, Portugal. I have one game situation that I've been dealing dealing with for some time now that I'd like some feedback on. Returning an easy second serve during singles. At the level I play at, I often play opponents that cannot produce a heavy second serve. My question has to do with the situation where I hit the return with my forehand. Taking your thoughts on directionals, I most often return these shots cross-court. 
as a rule, I take the ball early and on the rise so that I don't have to deal with a shoulder-high ball and also to pressure and take time away from my opponent. That's great, Louie. Usually, I'm able to hit a consistent, aggressive cross-court forehand. The first couple of times in a match I do this, I get unforced errors from my opponent, but as the match goes on, he tends to adapt to my shot. When I finish my shot, I'm somewhere in between the baseline and the service line in no man's land. I can see this as I, I could see this shot as a cross court approach shot, and I go to the net, return and volley, or I can recover to the baseline to a neutral position. On the ad side, that's fine because I hit an inside out forehand to my opponent's typical weaker side, their backhand, and from there I can usually control the points. On the deuce side, I hit to my opponent's typical strength when I hit cross-court, their forehand, and sometimes I find myself in trouble. If I go to the net, I leave the ad court open when he's on the deuce side and also risk a shot directly at my feet. If I go back to the baseline and recover, I have a lot of court to cover until I find myself in a good position. This said, on the deuce side, should I try to hit down the line forehands more often? even if I hit them with less pace than I hit the cross-court ones to avoid unforced errors. And this way, I would go to the net with less distance to cover and with better court position. You're correct, Louie. Should I hit cross-court and try to recover to the baseline to a more neutral position, or should I try to hit the center of the court to the feet of the server? Okay, so lots of, lots of options here. And Louie, you're off to a really good start understanding the situation that you're in, the different options that you have, and the pros and cons of each option. It's really smart that you're aware of the directionals, and I'm not going to get into the directionals right now and explain it, but basically it's a, it's a set of guidelines, they're general rules for where you should aim your shots and singles given different criteria. If you want to hear about the directionals, go and listen to podcast number 157, where I talk about them in detail there. So in general, you've, you've got some great thoughts going on here, Louie, and you're aware of a lot of different things. You know that down the line in general is riskier. You know that approaching off a cross-court shot is not a good idea. So it's great that you have these things in mind. Now, the directionals are really good, and they're a solid foundation to build your single strategy on top of, but it's important to understand that sometimes it's okay to break the directionals. And I'm going to go over four different situations where it's okay to do that. There are other tactical considerations that can override the directionals and make it smart to, to break them. And namely, what, what I'm talking about here is the fact that an outside ground stroke is usually best to play cross-court. And on the deuce side, that's what he's talking about. He's, he's struggling with the decision of whether to go cross-court, which he knows is the smarter shot in general. It's higher percentage as opposed to going down the line. Now, the four tactical situations that I have listed here where it's okay to break that rule of going cross-court most of the time are, number one, your opponent has a considerably weaker side down the line. And on the deuce side, against another right-handed player, this very well could be the case because when you go down the line, it goes to a right-handed player's backhand. And if, in fact, their weaker side 
is their backhand side. And if it's substantially weaker than their forehand, then that could be a good reason to break the directionals and be able to come out ahead in the rally right from the get-go, right off of the return of serve. So that's number one. Number two, your opponent is considerably out of position. Now, this probably isn't going to apply to this specific situation that Louis is talking about um, because we're, we're going to go ahead and assume that the server isn't a dummy and serving all the way out by the doubles alley, nor is he or she falling over or out of balance or out of position in that way. So that's probably not going to apply, but just in general, keep that in mind. If, if you've moved your opponent way out of position during a singles point, during a rally, that can be a good reason to break the directionals and go down the line. Number three, you have a clear offensive opportunity. And that is definitely the case in Louis's situation here. He's describing a weak second serve that has very little spin, and it's an opportunity for sure. He has a chance here to attack. He's in a comfortable position. He's balanced. He's taking the ball on the rise. So we know that he's really confident about making this swing, and he has a, a, a good opportunity here to be offensive and be able to get the point in his favor or get, get the rally swung in his favor right from the get-go. And then number four, you plan on approaching the net. When you're approaching the net, even if it's on an outside ball, usually you want to go down the line because of the geometry of being able to cover passing shots. Louis mentioned that in his question. He already knows what's going on here. And I'm not going to go through the trouble of explaining it here either since he already knows. Uh, I've certainly, certainly talked about that, the why of that in previous shows. Definitely check out uh, episodes about approaching the nets. So there's four reasons, Louis, why breaking the directionals can not only be okay, but actually the right thing to do tactically. Again, quick review. Your opponent has a much weaker side down the line. Your opponent is out of position. You have a clear offensive opportunity, and you plan on approaching the net. If, if any one of those things is clearly available, then breaking the directionals can be good. If multiple, you know, if you have a combination of two or more of those things, all four of those criteria might be present all at the same time, in which case going down the line, you know, would be best. Uh, following the directionals and taking an outside ball cross court might actually be a really bad idea if your opponent has a much weaker side down the line and they're way out of position. They're already cross court from you and it's an easy ball. You have an offensive opportunity and you plan on coming to the net after this shot anyway. <laughs> you know, it's very likely, or possible anyway, that all four of those criteria could be, could be met. And you could have an outside ball. And going down the line is obviously the right choice. So, Louis, I just want to make sure that you're aware that while the directionals are great and they're a good guideline, it's not written in stone. And there's many reasons why breaking the directionals might be a great thing to do. And it sounds like that you have met several of those criteria um, when you're on the deuce side and you have this weak second serve that you're able to attack on. Now, three other things I want to I touch on quickly. First of all, you mentioned in your question that when you go down the line, you're, you're being much more conservative. You're taking pace off. Now, 
it's important to understand that down the line is a higher risk shot. Um, it just is. The, you have less room to work with. The net is higher. There's just more ways to screw up when you go down the line. It's important to know that. But it definitely should still be an offensive shot. And if if I were you, um, I wouldn't make it higher percentage. I, I wouldn't make up for the fact that it's a lower percentage shot by slowing down. Instead, I would simply hit with more spin, hit with more top spin, curve the ball more. And as a result, you'll be able to gain back the margin for error that you're losing by going down the line. Make sure also that you're not aiming for the line. Make sure you give yourself at least three or four feet of space inside the line as, as you try to hit that shot and make it a confident, accelerated swing. If if you can't currently put enough topspin on the ball to really make it curve and dip back into the courts, definitely work on that because that's a shot that you really want to have down confidently so that you can take advantage of these situations where you have opportunities to be able to attack. Um, or, and I, I almost hesitate to put this in here, if it's really, really easy, I mean, just just aim lower over the net and just, you know, just go for a winning shot, more or less. If it's just a real sitter, then you might not even need to add that extra spin to make it safer. It's very possible that uh, you have the ability to confidently still just drive through the ball solidly and probably make it into a winning shot. But um, I, I almost don't want to say that because recreational players in general tend to hit too low, too straight, not with enough margin for error. And so be careful with that. The first choice would be to add a, add some extra spin, make it safer so that you balance out the, uh, the extra risk that you've incurred by going down the line. Secondly, um, if after making your offensive attempt down the line or, or cross court, either way, and you realize that it wasn't that great of a shot, you know, you had every intention of hitting a great pressuring shot, but it just didn't work out that way. You didn't hit it as cleanly as, as you wanted to, or maybe your opponent anticipated where you were going and, and got there nice and early, and you see them, you see that they're going to be in balance, and it's not going to be much trouble for them. In that case, definitely recover quickly back to the baseline and wait for a better opportunity. And I know that you have a little bit of distance to go from where you made contact back to the baseline, but standing there is not an option. And moving forwards, while it would pressure them, if they have reasonably good ground strokes, it's just going to set up for an easy passing shot for them. So learn to be aware of how good of a shot you actually struck when you went for that offensive change of direction. And learn to sense the f- the fact whether or not you really have just pressured your opponent. And if not, then start working on recovering quickly back to the baseline and just kind of s- stay alive to fight another day, you know, L- live to fight another day. And uh, don't overpressure and don't overplay your hand. Be smart about it and go back to a neutral position and wait for a better opportunity. Now, of course, if your opponent has terrible passing shots, then by all means, just go ahead and just go right up to the net and and go ahead and pressure them and continue to do that, even if you don't hit your best shot. But against somebody who's your level or maybe even a little bit higher level than you and has solid, confident passing shots, that's probably not something you want to do over and over again. And then lastly, Louie, if they start getting used to your attack, and this is something you mentioned in in your question, uh, if you 
let's say on the deuce side, you start taking that forehand down the line confidently. You're curving it so it's still safe. You're going to their weaker side. Maybe you're even following it up to the net on a regular basis and really pressuring them. Uh, all good offensive selections. If they start getting used to that and they start anticipating it and they start making adjustments so that it's not really challenging them as much anymore, feel free to mix it up. Don't let them get comfortable. Now, if it continues to work, when you take that forehand down the line, then by all means, keep doing it again and again and again. Don't even mix it up. Just you know, be obvious about it and just keep attacking and pounding that backhand over and over again. But if they get comfortable and they start burning you with passing shots or they start you know, guessing and moving early and really getting set up well and, and they start beating you, then mix it up. Start going cross-court as well. And um, it's especially since this is a really easy shot that you're talking about. You're, you're comfortable. You're in balance. You don't have to go one way or the other. Feel free to mix it up and keep them guessing if they start getting used to your attacks and it's not effective anymore. And last thing I'll say is you're, you're correct about being wary about approaching cross courts. Um, you can still do it. You can still move in off a cross court ball. Just make sure that you really pressure them and you've made it a, a really good offensive shot. Otherwise, you're right. You do leave yourself open for an easy passing shot down the line. Okay. So, Louie, great question. And you've come at this uh, from a really good level of understanding already. Hopefully this gives you a little bit more freedom to be able to mix up your tactics a little bit more, especially when you're in balance and it's an easy shot and you can comfortably attack. Definitely start using that down-the-line option, especially if your opponent is getting used to your cross-court attacks and especially if it's uh, if their back end is a weaker side, etc., etc. So hopefully you have better understanding of this situation now and, and this is helpful to you. If you have anything anything further, definitely feel free to let me know. Great to have you as a listener in Portugal. Hopefully you continue to enjoy the show. Thanks for writing. All right, that does it for episode number 165 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me on today's episode. I appreciate it. And I'm going to go ahead and start up with the comments next week. So any comments that people leave for today's show, I'm going to pick one or two of them and read at the end of next week's show. So if you have any comments or questions or feedback about today's episode, go to EssentialTennis.com slash podcast, click on episode number 165, leave your comments down at the bottom. I always read and reply to those right there. And I'm going to pick a couple to read at the end of next week's show as well. So I look forward to seeing that feedback. Uh, real quickly, and I really should have said this at the beginning of the show, I just released a new video series about building your serve from the ground up. And I it's a three-part video series showing six progressions to developing a solid fundamental service motion. Check that out by going to EssentialTennis.com slash video, and you'll see all three videos there. They're free to watch, and it's really good information, so definitely go check it out whenever you get the chance. All right, that does, that does it for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. Take care, and good luck with your tennis. Tennis.